Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And on this episode, one of my favorite people on planet Earth, she's the most regular guest ever on our uh, podcast. She was our first guest. Her name is Dushka Zapata. And she's one of the most prolific and important writers on planet Earth. Her work has been viewed on question and answer site Quora. 165 million times. And if by chance you're not familiar with Quora, go check it out. Set up an account and follow Dushka. And if that's all you do on Quora, um, you'll be stoked. She's got a brand new book out called Feelings Are Fickle and Other Things I Wish Someone Had Told Me. And uh, look, she just, um, this is a great conversation. She reads, she helps me make sense of it all, and uh, she's going to leave you in a different place. Go to Lockhead.com to check out more on Dushka. Check out the show notes on this episode. Uh, we're sponsored by my good friends at Oracle NetSuite. Visit NetSuite.com slash different today. Learn how to turn data into doing with my friends at Splunk, S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And I want to thank our friends at Squadcast.fm. It is the professional podcast platform that we use. Now, hey-ho, let's go. think that in these days, asking how are you is so loaded. It's practically impossible to answer. So I need to find another greeting. Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting. In the last nine months, I have had to learn how to speak differently. And so when people ask, even before all this started, when people asked me how I was, for a while, I told them exactly. And uh, it turned out that didn't go well a lot. <laughs> Yeah. particularly with people I didn't know very well, but even sometimes with people I did know well. And so here's what I've landed on. When somebody asks me how I am, uh, today, for the most part, I say, I'm really glad to see you or really glad to talk to you. Oh, that's very good. That's a that's very, very good answer. Yeah, I usually also give an answer, which is like more than anybody bargains for. Um, but I also complain about the question. Because it's, it's not a thoughtful question. It's not like I really want to know who you are. It's just a, a way of greeting. So I go, yes. that, do we really want to know? Do we really want to ask that question? So I, I just sort of complain about the question <laughs> instead of saying, good in you. <laughs> so I'm like, wait yes. a minute. Let's, let's sit here and ponder what you're actually asking me. What are you asking me here? What and here's me? What, what do you expect I'm going to say in the middle of this shit show that we're in? And at an expressive and angry moment uh, before, uh, I think in December-ish, I, I wrote a, a post that said, don't ask me how I am unless you want to know the answer. And I sort of went off on exactly this topic when I was feeling particularly raw. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that... um Anyone that you encounter today, anyone is isolated, scared, overwhelmed, maybe unemployed, stressed. Like it's just, it's just like a really, really a moment of reckoning. So that's how it feels for you. It feels like everything, everything at the same time. Like there are moments where I, I feel sad, very, very sad. There's moments where I feel stressed. There's moments where I, if I just like, turn around and look at the future. I have no idea what I see. I don't know where I'll be in two weeks, two, a month, two months. It's just, I don't think um, things have ever been this uncertain. And then I also feel 
grateful for, for the space that I have. We've had discussions before about me being a pretty intense introvert. And so um, social distancing for me is not hard. So I, I also feel like a gigantic measure of relief in all of the things that I used to do that I don't have to do anymore. I feel super worried. Um, I think this virus is getting worse. And I think that there's a discrepancy between um, the measures taken and how the virus is behaving. And that's like really concerning. Um, There's just a lot of civil unrest, which makes me feel like I haven't been listening. Um, So many things. I feel all the things. Yeah, I do too. And you have a big career and you write prolifically. um, And you've been it seems like as a as a consumer of your writing, it does feel like you're writing with a the word in my mind may be the wrong word, but the word in my mind is maybe a little more urgency. But I don't know how how do you feel? Do you, do you notice there's been a change in your writing in the last few months? I feel like I so I as you know, and I was as we've discussed on the show before, I write every day. Um, so writing is a way that I show up for myself. So I am a human and that means that I'm not static and as such I have you know moods and ups and downs and emotions and all of these things so I navigate those through my writing so I think that at any given time you could say that my writing was more urgent or less urgent or exactly it it has an it's like the ocean right we are all like the ocean what I felt was for a time I felt like I needed to listen and I just stopped writing for a while, which I've never done. I have, I, I have not suspended my writing. I, I didn't stop writing, actually. I stopped posting. And now I feel, I just have like very specific things to say. But I also feel like angry. And I feel like there are so many things that I haven't been listening to that once I understand them a little bit better, I want to report on them. So I feel maybe just more deliberate rather than more urgent. Here's how it feels to me. You're grappling with this situation in real time for all of us to see the way I think a lot of us are, but you're, it's almost like your writing is almost more like a journal now than, than, than maybe it used to be. But I I don't know if that's the right metaphor either. Am I in the right direction here? Yeah, I I definitely think you are. Um, I, um, yeah, I also here's I think that, that what you just said is absolutely true, but I also think that a lot of what I'm grappling with, so usually what we grapple with is that in some degree an intimate experience. So you grapple with a breakup and it's your breakup. You grapple with a fight with a friend and it's your fight with your friend. And so you talk to other people that have gone through breakups. But this time everyone is going through the same thing. So we're having very different experiences within the same thing. But in the, at the end of the day, we're going through the same experience. So therefore, when I grapple with it, I think that my, this grappling is in a sense more connected to other people because they know exactly what I'm talking about. So I think that the, it's more, it, I think that the, the grappling is, is more something you can relate to than before. Because before, I, I usually talk about universal experiences, but we don't all go through them at the same time. And that's one of the many things about what's happening today that is so horrifying and so fascinating at the same time. I have friends everywhere. I have friends, as you know, I've lived in many places in in the world throughout my life. And I have friends in Italy and friends in Switzerland and friends in across Asia. And like, we're all going through the same thing and, you know, through similar concerns and similar fears. And it's just, it's horrible and fascinating. 
horrible and fascinating. That's an interesting way to put it. Yes. Now, I'm curious. I've sort of come to a place, Dushka, where um, I was going to say I believe, but I'll, I'll say it this way. My current assessment, because <laughs> mm-hmm. who knows what to believe, but my current assessment is I, I, it looks like we're maybe living through a cocoon time. That's what that's kind of sort of where I'm landing, that there was life before February and there's going to be life in the future and that we're in this transition and uh, Harvard Business Review recently come out with came out with an edition with a big sort of gr- uh, digital rendering of a, a butterfly that was kind of impressive to sort of symbolize the same thing. And so I'm curious what your reaction to that is, uh, the thought that we may be in a cocoon time here. Well, first of all, it's a very beautiful thought because it it intimates that things are going to get better not just change, but they're going to get better. I mean, going from a slug to a butterfly is like, it's just a beautiful metaphor. Like you grow wings and you are full of colors and you're iridescent, right? I I like how that sounds. So obviously I feel like this is going to end. Everything that you go through, including life itself is transitory, right? So I, I know that there's an end to this, but I think that there's something that has changed forever. Life will never be the way that it was back in February. If for no other reason, because something inside us has changed, like I've lost the illusion that this can't happen, for example. And there's just also a lot of things that I'm seeing that were always around me that just weren't evident to me, which is in itself quite painful. So I think that we, I think it's a time of reckoning. So I I remember the lowest I have felt through all of this, like the, 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 the night I was like, oh my God, this is incredibly awful. And that night, coincided with Trump involving the military against protesters. That night, I was like, I think I'm going to wake up to a bloodbath. And I felt terror. I felt awful. I felt terrified and terrified and horrified and all of these things. But then I feel like things began to turn in a way that made me feel more hopeful. And since that moment, I have felt increasingly hopeful that we are headed to something better and that change is actually going to happen. Because I think that in many ways, the change is happening inside of us, not just outside. We are reevaluating ourselves. And I, I, I just haven't seen that happen at such a mass scale before um, in my lifetime. And so on that dimension, that, that gives you hope then? It does. I feel, I feel mostly hopeful. Hmm. You feel mostly hopeful now? Yes. I mean, that it doesn't make me any less horrified or sad or, you know, sometimes I definitely feel okay, an occasional sense of doom. But I think the underlying feeling where before it wasn't the underlying sense was just like angsty and uncertain. Now I feel a sense of hope. And what are the kinds of things that um, you sort of uh, look at that that provide you this sense of hope? I feel like there's a new consciousness. I feel like things have been unfair and unequal and misunderstood for a very long time. And I feel like finally people are, me included, when I say people, I also mean myself. I I just feel like we are beginning to notice, we're like, oh, what? About things that we had not noticed before. And that kind of, I think change starts with ourselves and with something that happened inside, sort of like a uh, recognition and an awareness of what's happening inside of us, to me, that is a symptom of real change. And mm-hmm. I think that that's what I see. Of course, there's a whole world that I don't see, but from what from where I sit and what I can see, that is what I'm seeing. I am witnessing p- 
people reevaluating internally. Yes. And certainly what we know is optimism works in a way that pessimism doesn't. And it can be hard to be optimistic, but the reality is entrepreneurs, creators, innovators, and, um, you know, just regular people who have good lives, happy lives are generally more optimistic than pessimistic. Human beings don't seem to do well when we're pessimistic for (laughs) elongated periods of time. But I'm curious what you think. Well, I think I would want to make a distinction between optimism and toxic optimism. Toxic optimism is like, I believe that things will work out in a good way. That is optimism. Toxic optimism is me believing that things will work out in a good way is a wall between me and understanding the possibilities. So am I, in my optimism, opening up other possibilities that people had not considered, or am I blind to what's actually happening today? And so the, the, the breed of optimism that I believe in and that I feel like I feel hopefully does not uh, deny another person's experience. So if you feel sad or shitty or went through a horrible experience and I force you to, to, say, to think, Christopher, you know, everything is, is transitory. You're going to be fine. You know, that kind of thing denies your experience. So I think it's really important that in being optimistic, we recognize another person's experience of pain or of dejection or of, you know, whatever, whatever the, the case may be. Yes. Uh, and I understand people are trying to be kind and, and I appreciate that and all that. But sort of the worst thread I've had to listen to is, oh, you know, it, it, it's all the pop psychology bullshit. Oh, the, the first the first birthday, you know, after you get through that and, it, and there's this 12 stages of grief and you're in stage three and like. Yeah. Or everything happens for a reason. Yeah. And time heals everything and all of that. That is toxic. That is toxic positivity, but it's also a form of toxic optimism. And I think that that's really, I mean, it's toxic. It's, it denies another person's experience. And I, I want to be very careful that I don't do that with my optimism. So I feel hopeful. But obviously, I recognize that the situation that we're in is awful. And I also think that it's very different for different people. I mean, there's, I mean, think of people in the front lines. Think of people who got sick. Think of people in the hospital. Like there's people are going through th- different experiences, even within a similar situation. And I mean, that's, uh, that's very, very, very real. Well, in the phrase in my head, I'll, so I just say what's in my head, the financial terror. I mean, absolutely. I'm sure you have friends and family who are in that situation. I sure do, where it's the realization of, okay, I I don't have a job in the short term because my industry is shut down. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was talking to, I shouldn't say who, but somebody very close to me recently. And the aha is this person's industry is shut down and not coming back. Exactly. And and, and also it happened, I'm going to give you just two examples. Two small examples. I have heard people in commercial real estate say offices will always need a space. The industry that I'm in is solid. I've heard people say people will always need haircuts. The industry that I'm in is solid. And the the speed at which things completely changed, not just the industry, but the outlook for the industry, is just it's just I, it gives me whiplash to even think about it. So I, I think that that's also, you know, very very real. 
what is going to happen? And I think that's when it's just so dangerous to be optimistic. Like, what does that mean? Everything's going to be okay. What do you mean? And so I, I feel hopeful, but I don't want to deny how hard this is and how awful this is and how dangerous this is and how, how disconnected from reality a lot of the measures the government is taking are. Like, I feel like it's incredible to me that a, a virus has become political or like something as simple as wearing a mask has become politically charged. Like those things just infuriate me. Infuriate sounds more like frustration. It makes me feel such rage. I feel enraged when I think, why am I arguing with someone about wearing a mask? When I talk, I eject droplets from my mouth that can attach themselves to the person that I'm talking to. And if I wear a mask, I protect the other person. It's, it's literally physics. What, what part of wearing a mask sounds like uh, I'm in a different political party? It's just, it's just irrational to me. So that kind of thing I find, uh, you know, rage inducing. <laughs> yes, I, I understand. <laughs> and of course, the great irony about it is we're all learning in real time and yes. information has changed very, very rapidly. But I like you pay attention and I like you look at the data, not just the opinions about things. Um, and there's some wonderful data sources out there where you can look, com- look at things and compare things and so forth. But anyway, long story longer, it appears, and I'm no, you know how much time I spent studying epidemiology, but it appears that um, these folks who are anti-mask and want the economy completely reopened like the aha that seems to have emerged is, well, hey, wait a minute, if we can physically distance and and we can cl- make sure everything's clean and we can make sure that there's good air circulation or that we're outside if possible and we wear masks, you know, there's a sort of a list of things that are now appearing to yeah. show up. It yeah. says if we do these things and especially given the infections and who's likely to get super sick and who's likely to die and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's an appearing aha, and it could change at any moment that says, if we wear masks and we do these things and we're smart, we can open back up much more than we thought maybe we could. And and so it's, it's just, it seems insane to me that some of these people who are anti-mask want the economy up when wearing a fucking mask and doing all this other stuff is the exact thing that appears that looks like we need to do to open the economy. Exactly. Exactly. And that part is, is, well, it's, it's infuriating and it makes me angry, but it, it all, I also look at it and feel that's, that's the part that makes me feel hopeless. It's just like, look, look at me, use your, use common sense and like, look at what's happened and I think that we're going to be in this for a very, very long time because people need to understand that there's a middle ground between complete lockdown and complete openness where there are certain measures that you have to take that if you don't take them, you just continue to cause new waves of this virus. And to me, I mean, just like you, I don't, I'm not a virus expert or anything like that, but I'm reading and I'm looking at the evidence and, you know, I, I would like for... I would like to see a clear path for a, for us to be in a better place. And the way that things are being handled makes me feel that it, that's a long way away. Yes. Well, we're a collection of 50 states. And uh, yes, the big aha I think we've all had, and we recently had David, David Crane on the podcast, and it was the biggest education in how U.S. government works that I've had in my entire life is that... Um, to, to use his phrase, 
the federal government is an insurance company with an army and that 90% of the things that affect you and I on in our day-to-day lives are at the state and the local level. And yet most of us don't know who our state senator is and all of us know who our federal senator is. And so if you want to make shit happen, you know, this was what David Crane taught me. If you want to make shit happen, it's at the local and at the state level and, and much less uh, at the federal level. And yet most of us, myself included, up until very recently, weren't fucking paying attention. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think that's true. And I, th- I think the fact that we haven't been paying attention is pretty across the board, right? It's it's one of the sort of like the symptoms that have been showing up across a variety of different issues. But the other thing, to just to go back to the virus for a moment, the other thing that is astounding to me is how many things happened in other countries before they happened here to give us an example of what we needed to do. So I, it wasn't that we needed to be experts on it. It's that we needed to learn from what had happened in other countries to get it right here. So we we just kept making the same mistakes instead of learning from what was happening in other places. So the, what you just described is very local. It's very specific to the U.S. But what about the example that Denmark sets, that Italy sets, that Spain set, that China set? Like, we saw things done well and done that b- badly time and time again. We had we had time and we squandered it. Well, and of course, not to dogpile on this one, but we squandered <laughs> it once it got here, right? There were certain parts of the country that when the shit was hitting the fan in New York, said, ah, that's New York. That's Absolutely. not going to happen that, here for X, Y, or Z reason. Yes, that is the part that I find incredible. The, the, it, it not so, so if someone tells me, there is a pandemic, there's a virus in China and the chances that this virus that's in China makes its way across the world are pretty high. I think that I would have been skeptical. I understand the skepticism. I really do. This is this, something like this to this degree had, has not happened in, in our lifetimes. But then when you start seeing it in other countries, you have to say, wait a minute, you know, maybe we should be a little bit more cautious. And we just squandered one opportunity after the other. Yes. And here we are. Now, um, you're in San Francisco right now, are you not? Yes, I'm in, I'm in San Francisco. And so I, I've been hearing from other friends who live in the city some, uh, I haven't been in San Francisco since I think January. Some, and of course I've been reading, but I, I don't live there. Some very troubling things about what's going on in San Francisco. So w- what's your experience of San Francisco right now, Dushka? So the first thing I want to say is that my movement around the city is extremely limited. I'm taking sheltering in place very seriously. Um, I live in the mission. I don't have a car. I don't have a desire to get in another person's car because that would be counter to social distancing. So I read what you read, but I don't like experience the city like I used to. I don't move very, very far away from my sort of like radius of operation. Um, I feel I'm personally very impressed with London Breed. I think that she has uh, acted w- uh, with uh, just like a tremendous amount of courage and has made a lot of really difficult decisions that have put the city in a very good place. Um, and if I were to point something out that I've that I've noticed and read about is that I think that the homeless situation is compounding and awful and needs to be addressed in a way that is more just more humane and longer lasting and and I, I, the thing that I could, I think if, if it was up to me and I was an authority on it, I just don't think that I would know how to do it. I think it's a very, very complicated problem. So I've had several troubling conversations with friends who live and work in the city recently. 
and with very measured people, people who are I've ha- haven't experienced them to be overly dramatic or sensationalized things. And I- I've heard very thoughtful people say stuff like it feels, quote, post-apocalyptic in San Francisco. So I live in the mission. Um, it, so now things are a little bit better because a lot of people that close down are opening up and sort of like selling like things to go or pick up on the sidewalk and, th- you know, sidewalk pickup and things like that. But for a while there, Every business around me was boarded up, like with wood board windows boarded up. And I walked around the city, looking around, walking around the mission, anything that's like, I live in the mission, so anything around my neighborhood. And it did feel post-apocalyptic, but I think that it, I mean, it was, you know, we, we, the world completely changed in a matter of weeks and things that we thought were immutable crumbled in a matter of weeks. And I think that the city was reeling from it. But I think that now things are just a little bit better because instead of seeing a business boarded up, you see it not boarded up and with a little bit of sign of life. But I think that that's less a reflection of the city specifically and more a reflection of what we've all been through. I mean, I think that it, all things considered, San Francisco has, has, has fared quite well. Well, here's the thing I wonder about. So... I'm sure you've seen all the same stories that I have about uh, rents and property values coming down in San Francisco Mm -hmm. and the number of people moving out. I've read a lot about it. I have some, you know, I have a friend who's a a realtor in Tahoe. And even before the lockdown happened, his phone was ringing off the hook. There's no inventory of homes in Tahoe. And you just hear it. It seems like I don't go more than a couple days without hearing about somebody moving. I talked to somebody this morning who's moving to Austin. All kinds of people are moving to Idaho and Montana. And like it just both anecdotally in my own life and then the reports I read, it it feels like a lot of people are moving the fuck out. It I hear that the the ultra rich got out of the city quickly and sort of the next layer of rich below them that had second homes got out next. And now you have people just saying, fuck it. Why do I need to move here? Or why do I need to live here? And so do you feel that? Is that, is that a sensation you're experiencing? I feel, I feel that yes and no. So if you're working for a company that requires you to show up at work every day, and suddenly the company says, you don't have to show up at work every day, and you realize that you can be anywhere, that doesn't mean working from home. It means working from anywhere right? So you reevaluate what you're doing. And if you're in the middle of a pandemic and you're like, maybe I shouldn't be in a place that's so crowded. Maybe I should be in a place that has more outdoor space and you can do that. You do. I also think that a lot of people are inherently attracted to the city. They are city people. That is why cities exist because we like being around other people and we like to have, you know, nightlife and restaurants and bookstores. And that also is like, can we sit in a restaurant? Like there's a lot of things that are being reevaluated. So, um, I think that, yeah, a lot of people are going to move out. I think that for companies, this has tax implications. Like, you know, in an ideal world, you want to live in Montana with a San Francisco salary, but I don't think that that's going to be possible. I think that, I think that rules are are going to start to change um, in regards to that. So I think that we have to see, I think that a, a large amount of very big companies are saying, you don't need to come back ever. You can work from home. And I think that that means different things to different people. I think if you have two little kids, you want to see them run outside. And maybe if you're in a different uh, demographic, you like being in the city. So I, I think that it still needs to shake itself out. I don't think that I, I am ready to give you a definitive answer. But I definitely think that some people are going to reevaluate where they want to live. And so what I wonder, whether it's San Francisco or any other major city 
in the U.S. and potentially in the world. Are we seeing a meaningful redesign sort of cocoon situation where, so I'll give you a simple, simple example to sort of get to the fine point of it. I've been asking every CEO and VC that I know just in regular course of conversation, what percentage of the knowledge worker office space do you think ultimately you're going to need? And the answer I get is somewhere between 25% to 50%, but more like 25 to a third. I've had Mm -hmm. very few say 50 and a lot say 25 to a third. And the other consistent answer I get is we may, as you play this out over time, we may see the end of big corporate headquarters and more like, you know, 150 to 200 to maybe 500 person pods where you have the ability to have 500 people there, but really only a quarter of that number is there at any one time. Anyway, there's a lot of discussion about this that I've been asking about, but the bottom line is it feels like somewhere between 25% to a third is required of the office space that we have for knowledge workers. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. So without making any less of what you're hearing, just put a pin on that for a moment and let me give you the opposite perspective. So I'm going to tell you about me. I very much enjoy my time alone. Um, I I like writing, which is a very lonely, uh, it's a very, you, you don't write in, a, in the middle of a bunch of people, you write alone. And yet I love going into the office. I love the collaboration and I love the friends that you make. And I love saying, let's go get coffee. Like I love the camaraderie of an office. I love that you are working with people who understand you because you're working on similar things. Um, I was working at Zendesk, this like fabulous company where a lot of what we did was travel and do events everywhere in the world. So we traveled together um, and it was very exhausting and it was wonderful. So I can tell you that if I were given a choice to work in an office with other people or work from my home, I would want to work in an office. And I think that that's true for many people, even people who like working from home. So I'm telling you that there's a pendulum and it's mid-swing and it's going to swing back. I don't think it's going to swing back all the way. I think that this has shown us something and it has taught us something. But I think that if we're right in the middle of the pendulum swing, so basically the pendulum swings all the way left and all the way right. And right now we're all the way right because we're in the middle of this virus situation. But what happens when the virus starts receding? A month from now, six months from now, a year from now, five years from now. What happens when that happens and we start just really missing the, the, just the, the beauty of like all being in the same room, looking at each other's faces and talking. I, I just don't think that where we are now is where it's going to land. I think that it's a, I think it's a swing and I think that we're at, at one extreme of it. But I also feel that part of what you're saying is true. Like there's, there's, there's truth to the fact that not everyone needs to be in the office. So what does that look like? I think that it's, we're in the, we're mid process. We're not ready to, to, with, we're not ready to give definitive answers. So you think 25% to a third uh, of people, low. It, it, you think that's low? It maybe goes back to 50 or something even higher. Yeah. I, I, if I were to just like sort of like take a shot at it, if I was a betting person, which I'm not, if I liked making predictions and looking back at them and marveling at my ability to make predictions, I think I would be pretty bad at it. But I would say we're going to land somewhere in 50%, not 20%. And I think people are going to want to be 
rather than like, I'm going to go work in Greece while I work for a company in the US, I think that people are going to say, I want to go to Tahoe so I can show up at work twice a week rather than not at all. I think that we're going to land somewhere in the middle. But I think that the paradigm of I have to go in an office and I'm bound by the office, so I have to live in a certain place. I think that's what has been broken. I now see that there's other possibilities. And that's what I meant back when we first started talking about this inner change. There's an inner, like you, you sit there and you go, huh, I didn't have to go into the office. What does that mean? And there's that inner reestablishing of reality, this reality that I considered immutable that is now more elastic. And that's what has changed. That has changed more than commercial real estate has changed. Well, and sort of a corollary to that, I had a conversation with a CFO recently of a meaningful public company, and she told me something that (laughs) knocked me over. Current course and speed, they're going to save about $250 million this year on travel and entertainment. Yeah, I have been thinking for a long time that we spend too much money on travel and entertainment, just like too much money, disproportionate amounts of money. And I think that that's also a pendulum, right? It'll swing somehow. But I do think we're social creatures. And I do think that we, I, th- I think that the way that we're living, I think that just because it's possible to live the way that we're living now doesn't mean that it's what we're going to want. Interesting. Now, here's another one I've been sort of uh, uh, very much looking forward to bouncing off of you. Mm-hmm. Part of the experience, certainly, that I have had is a cold shower that says the future is not promised to any of us. Mm -hmm. And, of course, as we continue to exist on the planet, you learn that over time in life, that tomorrow is promised to nobody. And the fact that today is the way today is doesn't mean tomorrow is going to be the way today is. And so... With all that said, I would summarize that by saying collectively, myself included, took the future or certain things about the future for granted. And those things, that rug has been pulled from underneath us in many ways. And so I'm curious what your reaction to all that is. Yeah, I think I'm going to tell you two things. The first is that the first heartbreak that came from all of this to me was the realization that of just how much I had taken for granted just how much I had taken for granted, just the tiniest things. I was like, I can't believe I've lost that. But I will also tell you that we still have most of the things that we take for granted. We still have those things. We have not lost them. So we can't be, I don't want to lose myself to the, to the grief of what I've missed if I still have it. And I think that in many ways, we still have what we take for granted. Hmm. Well, I I love that you think that. Um, And it also has made me realize that we need to um, stand up for what we think is right. You know, this concept of the future needs you. If you're somebody who's in a position to make a difference, to make a contribution, to influence the way our society operates, uh, if you want to make a difference in social justice, if you want to make a difference in... Uh, how we unify. I think the forces of evil are trying to divide us in a pretty meaningful way right now. And it's, 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 and there are many amongst us who can unify us at the neighborhood level, at the community level, and ultimately at the state and the federal level. And so I think 
the future is not guaranteed to us. And those of us who want the future to be a particular way, I think it's now time to to make a contribution and 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 to take a stand for um, the future that we want. But I'm curious as to your thoughts. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people are like, I want things to be a certain way, but I don't know how to contribute. And I think that the answer of how you contribute is the same answer of what is it that you do well? What are you good at? What do you do with a passion? So for example, I might I might not be the best person to give speeches, but I might be a good person to tell stories through my writing because I'm a writer. So I think if you want to know how you contribute, you should ask yourself what it is that you're good at. Because we are each, it's almost like a gigantic puzzle. And each of us is a one of the pieces of the puzzle. And our shape is what we what we are good at and what we what where our talent is. And if you take different people that are form different talents and assemble the puzzle, I think that you get a pretty powerful puzzle. I think we need to keep our eyes on what it is that we think that we can contribute. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's a time for radical generosity around the things that we can contribute, particularly to your point, the things that are in our strike zone, the things that our superpowers and and uh, skills that we've developed over years um if we contribute as much of that as we can those of us who are in a position to it makes a giant difference yeah exactly that is exactly what i believe now i'm curious do you have anything to read to me let me see if i have something to read to you i just wrote another book and you've been keeping it a little quiet haven't you just wrote another book and I've been keeping it, it. It's less that I've been keeping it quiet. And I have just felt that it wasn't exactly the right time to be talking about a book. That's, I think, feel like more appropriate, like in the pr- more appropriate way to put it. But what's interesting to me is that the book is mostly about managing of anxiety. And I feel like it came out at a time where managing anxiety was kind of important. So I don't know. I feel like it's, probably worth taking a look at it. So, so you know, I don't like to argue with you. As a matter of fact, I, I avoided it uh, <laughs> as, as much as possible. But can I argue with you a little oh bit about this, this book? Please do. Look, I know because of our inbox, the emails we get, uh, the world wants and needs more Dushka. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, when you're not on regularly enough, and particularly of late, people are like, hey, more Dushka, please. Enough with the generals. We love him and everything, but like, where's Dushka? <laughs> it's really lovely to hear. Let me read you something called Unbreakable. I'm gonna I'm gonna read you maybe one or two things. Um, all all both of them in this book. So I basically I wrote a book. The book is called Feelings Are Fickle and Other Things I Wish Someone Had Told Me. And it's about things I wish someone had told me when I was much younger. It's sort of a book to my younger self, if you will. So this uh, essay is called Unbreakable. This is what it says. You are not broken. You are not broken. Life tosses you around and sometimes everything hurts. It all feels scattered, fragmented, and shattered. Resist the temptation, the cheap satisfaction of bundling everything up and slapping a sloppy label on it just to slip it into a fallacy of a category. I'm a mess. Everything is horrible. Step away from the surface, the ripples, the choppiness. Look at what's right in front of you, at your center, radiating warmth. Look at all the things you have survived. Beautiful, untouchable, intact, sacred you. Indestructible. You are not broken. What you are is unbreakable. I am whole and so are you. Is it wrong for one man to love a woman? (laughs) (laughs) Never. 
Okay, and then, I, and then the other one that is also in this book that I um, it, that explains why the the cover of the book is sort of like a galaxy, and the essay is is it's very pretty. It's very simple. It's a very simple cover yes, for you. I love this cover. It, it's really this is the front. It's like a galaxy. It, it's like a disordered galaxy, and then the back is kind of a ordered galaxy, which I is kind of the sense that I wanted to give. And here's the here's the the opening essay. Um, how this essay is called, How Is It Possible That I Exist? Hundreds and thousands of things, millions of things, had to line up just right. Galaxies and their trajectory, stardust and how it fell, evolution and the way it took place across eons, people encountering other people so they could get together and make the people who made the people who made the people who made me. My mother and father meeting for the first time in that field of poppies. The moment of my conception, not earlier and not later, not to any other people but these two people, complete with their fire and their dreams. My existence defies all odds. I am a miracle, and so are you. You are a miracle, Dushka Zapata. <laughs> and then this one that is like very, very short, but I believe it's very aligned with the conversation that we had today, which is the question, how do you right the wrongs of the universe? And my answer is, I am full of flaws. I am part of the universe. To right the wrongs of the universe, I start with me. Could you just read that last one one more time? How do you right the wrongs of the universe? I am full of flaws. I am part of the universe. To right the wrongs of the universe, I start with me. Dushka Zapata. <laughs> I don't care what anybody thinks. Uh, you are a gift to humanity. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think you, you are a gift to humanity. <laughs> I'm really glad you think that. <laughs> yeah, uh, you make it different. Yeah, you really do. Thank you. And I, um, I love that so many zillions of others get to love you the way I do <laughs> now. I, uh, your popularity makes me exceedingly happy. I really appreciate that. It makes me exceedingly happy too. It makes me feel happy. And I'm not kidding because I, I, when people write to me to tell me that they read what I write, they tell me that they feel better. It makes me feel like I'm leading a life of purpose. Yeah. One of my closest friends called me this morning and uh, she was having some anxiety about something. And she's so great. She tells me up front, she's like, I'm going to tell you what's going on. But after I tell you what's going on, I just need you to tell me it's going to be okay. All right. And I said, great, I got it. And then she told me what was up. And, and you're like, it's going to be okay. All I said was, it's going to be okay. <laughs> and then we talked about it some more afterwards. But, I, you know, she told me what she wanted. She told me what she wanted to tell me. And I told her what she wanted to hear. Which is super interesting because sometimes when someone says it's going to be okay, my reaction is you're not listening to me. I don't want you to tell me it's going to be okay. I just want you to hear me. And it, that's, that is so much of toxic optimism is also in the eye of the beholder. You know what I mean? Like, Sometimes you say the very same thing to two different people and one person is like, why can't you hear me? And the other person is, thank you. And that, I think that that's so worth mentioning. You, I, I think we have to tread softly and try to figure out what it is that the other person needs because the same words are antidote to one and illness to another. Can you say that last sentence again? I don't know. <laughs> 
I think we have to tread carefully and think, just be uh, be alert to what another person needs because the same sentence can be antidote to one and illness to another. You certainly have a way with words, my love. <laughs> Good thing I'm a writer. <laughs> but then I'm Is talking any- to you instead of writing it down. So you say, can you say it again? And I'm like, shit. <laughs> How am I supposed to do that? <laughs> well, you know, I drink a lot and I want to make sure it writes to my database. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to touch on today, Dushko? I just want to tell people to take care of themselves. Um, I think it's just really rough out there and it's very easy to forget about yourself. And um, a person was telling me the other day that she felt self-love and self-care was selfish. And I was like, if you have a gigantic jug of water and you're serving other people water and you run, that jug runs out, you have nothing to serve. So just, just go and take care of yourself because otherwise you are not very useful to other people. It's a very yes. difficult time to, to find the wherewithal to take care of yourself. And we really, really need to more than ever. I have many friends who are first responders, firefighters, police officers and the like, uh, lifeguards around here. And uh, you hear it a lot. Rule number one when you're a first responder is don't turn yourself into a victim. 100%. So important. Right. You, you can't. You can't save somebody else if you run in recklessly and you don't care for yourself and you're not aware of your own situation. Absolutely. That, I think that that's a very good metaphor for life. Anything else? I think I'm good. I think if you keep asking me, I might keep up c- coming up with new things. And I feel like we're at times. So I'm just going to stop. Okay. Dushka okay. Zapata, I love you. I love you too. Thank you for having me. Please come back a lot. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. There she is, the legendary Dushka Zapata. Now, leading in uncertain times requires keeping your eyes on the road and your hands on the wheel. And today, more than ever, you need a full picture of your business. And that's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. Uh, NetSuite is a complete business system in the cloud, including finance, inventory, HR, customer management, omni-channel commerce, and much more. NetSuite is everything you need to gain the visibility and control that you need now to make the moment-by-moment decisions in your business. Visit netsuite.com slash different today. And while you're there, uh, you'll get your free product tour and your free guide, What Businesses Need to Do Now. Check out netsuite.com slash different. And big problems require big data. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. Splunk is the leader in data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E, and learn how to turn data into doing. That's splunk.com slash D2E. Also, um, if you want, you can send us email. We're trying to keep up. Uh, send email to blackhole at lockhead.com. And most importantly, we would like to thank the incredible Dushka Zapata. Her brand new book is out. Um, it makes a wonderful gift, particularly at this time. The book's called Feelings Are Fickle and Other Things I Wish Someone Had Told Me. My good friends at onelifefullylived.org are the nonprofit that's been making a difference to underserved communities and uh, wannabe up-and-coming entrepreneurs for almost 10 years. Visit the number one lifefullylive.org and make a difference today. Also, hey, if you're a CEO, you're a marketer, 
uh, you care about the growth of your business, why not check out Lockhead on Marketing? It's the number one charting marketing podcast that is hated by many and loved by few. Is it time to scale you? Why not check out my friends at Bottleneck and leverage the power of a distant assistant at bottleneck.online. Also, check out growwire.com. It's what legendary entrepreneurs and innovative people are reading, growwire.com. And now, communicating with your people has never been more important. Now's the time to get employee awesome. And that's where Socrates.ai comes in, the digital conversation hub. Check out Socrates.ai to get employee awesome. And if you want to learn how to conquer your category, visit my good friends at Atrenet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T, and they will set you up with a legendary, legendary... B2B website. All right, I need to remind you that today's property is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and we would love it if you shared the shit out of it. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this Oddcast gets produced in a studio that does contain nuts. We are produced and edited by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks, because it's always a good time to get your grump on. Uh, Sarah Knox and Jamie Day do legendary technical execution. And they build Lockhead.com, and we've uh, recently did an update. Check it out when you get a chance, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D dot C-O-M. <laughs> Show notes by D- Diane Gervasio. Uh, teach writing. Listen to Bruce Coburn. Be kind. Uh, Muhammad Ali was right. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carson, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.